0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Toronto's True Crime. My name is Laura, and I'm so excited to bring you true crime cases from Toronto and the surrounding area. I am a huge true crime junkie, and when I have fallen down my various internet rabbit holes, I realized that Toronto has a a lot of really interesting true crime, especially cold case true crime. Uh... I also found myself hitting a ton of walls when it came to research on this sort of thing because a lot of information isn't released to the public like police notes and logs and ambulance notes and logs until 90 years after the incidents take place. So just please bear with me when I say that information is not at a premium here. So I figured, why don't I use my research skills to dig around and come up with some comprehensive information on Toronto homicides. I've dug through news archives, internet information message boards, I've just looked all over the place, and in the future I may consider actually filing a Freedom of Information request. I mean, if... The press hasn't done it by now, or if they have and they haven't released any information about any of these cases, then I don't think I will find anything interesting, but I don't want to rule anything out. So I really just wanted to do this podcast. I reached out to my pals on the Unresolved Mysteries podcast on, sorry, the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit, and I just said, what do you guys think about me doing an Unresolved Toronto podcast and a lot of people came up with some really great cases. Some cases i had never even heard of. So I'm doing this partly for you guys. So each week I'm going to bring you a case from Toronto's past. So like according to um, the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit rules, I'm c- going to try and keep the cases that are at least a year old. So When somebody gets murdered in Toronto, there's a lot of media attention, you know, in the first few months. So I'd rather take my time and my resources and put them toward cases that have been kind of forgotten. So the cases I'll cover may be solved, unresolved or ice cold. So there's really no shortage of really great cases in Toronto. And I'm so excited to delve into them all. I should also note this is my very first foray into podcasting. So please be patient with me. If I suck, I promise I will get better. So I started down this path when I came across a murder that was really interesting to me. And it turns out the murder happened in downtown Toronto. Two murders happened. It, it was in the 1980s and I never ever heard of it. And I was like, that's really bizarre. I've lived in Toronto my whole life, I was born here in 1987. And I'd never heard of these particular homicides. So if I haven't heard about it in all the time that I've lived here, then how many other people could realistically have heard of this unless you're in really into this true crime or unresolved homicide sphere? I've heard of decades old murders from Europe, the United States. There's some really, really famous unresolved murders um, from around the world. And there's not a lot from Canada. And I have my theories as to why that is, but I won't speculate too much on that. So, I wanted to focus on Toronto's, you know, dark past. So, I started digging into Toronto's history. And it's a fairly new city by any standards. Um, but there's been a lot of crazy murders here, let me tell you. I found out that a notorious murder was actually committed on my street, which I didn't know. So, that was a little bit... Uh, alarming. But uh, the purpose of this podcast is really just to take some time and put together just an overview of and compile all the information about certain cases in hopes that it will re engage the public. It will make a difference. It's to put together a really strong narrative and cohesive story of what happened in hopes that eventually these crimes may be solved. So I hope that it it does make a difference. So hopefully a conversation will get started. So all I really want to do is tell these stories as factually and authentically as possible. So for my very first podcast, I wanted to start with the case that inspired me to do this. And that is the murders of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. So We're going to rewind to Toronto in the 1980s. It's very different from the Toronto it is today. So back, the census back in 1986 was 612,000 people in the city of Toronto. So between the 1950s and 70s, it was very blah and archaic. According to things I've read. And it's been quoted as being transformed from a joyless provincial backwater into an energetic cosmopolitan capital. So, this big change happened between the 50s and the 70s. However, there's also people saying that Toronto was much less polished back in the 80s and it was grittier and it was in some ways a friendlier and less cynical place. So, it's interesting. It was grittier in the 80s. However, People were more likely to be kind to one another on the street to make small talk. Toronto is notorious for being cold to each other and money your own business. And the Canadian stereotype of bumping into each other and saying sorry doesn't always apply here. So the city had a lot of character and that does come into play in these cases that there was more of a neighborly feeling. People knew each other. People communicated more. People were connected much more than they are today, just because they all lived in Toronto. So in the 80s, um, Toronto was really growing. It had a more of a working class vibe during this period. And really the growth was concentrated in new residential developments around Metro Toronto. So that would be the sort of the north, east, and west uh, proners of the city. So one other thing that I thought was interesting to note that could come into play in this case is that the 80s saw an emergence of a solid commercial presence in many of the suburban cities. So a lot of office and industrial park development was happening along the highway corridors, like the Highway 401, Highway 427, DVP. So there was a big influx of construction workers and trades people that came in in the 80s. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So let's get into the murders. Um, In December 1983, 22-year-old Erin Gilmore was living, working, and studying in Toronto. She was a fashion student at what is now Ryerson University, but back then it was called Ryerson Polytechnic. And she worked in a clothing boutique called Robin's Knits, and that is located at 37 Hazleton Avenue. And they're really, really posh, ritzy, Yorkville area so Yorkville is very 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 high end very expensive restaurants and bars and boutiques so very posh and it was the same way in the 80s it's the same way now it hasn't changed much from that perspective so Erin lived in the apartment located above the store where she worked I looked at pictures of Erin and she was young and beautiful and vivacious and she just looked like a a person with her whole life out of her. Um, she loved fashion and was looking forward to pursuing a career in the industry after she completed her education. So on the evening of December 20th, 1983, Erin closed the store where she worked. The store is called Robin's Knits. She closed the store at around 8.45 p.m. So remember, she lived above the store where she worked. So from the pictures I've seen, and apparently the facade of the store hasn't changed, she would just have to walk out of the store onto the street, lock it. And then there was a set of stairs to go up to the second floor, which is where she lived. So it was 15 meters, uh, from the store to her apartment. So extremely short distance. So the shop where she worked was highly visible from the street. So at that time of year, it's dark, obviously at 8 45 PM. So she had the lights on inside. Anybody from the street could have been watching her and she wouldn't have known. So really, it's creepy, but it's true. So, and it's presumed that whoever did kill her had been watching her. So obviously because she lived right above where she worked, her killer also knew where she lived. So Erin lived alone and she had recently moved into this apartment about five days before this occurred. So that's an interesting thing to take note of as well. So at around 930 on December 20th, Erin's friend who's also been reported as her boyfriend, Anthony Monk arrived to pick her up for a date. He found the door to her apartment ajar and went inside looking for her. So in all the digging I found, it doesn't say whether the apartment front door was ajar or if there was an exterior door and then some hallway, he had to go down. There's really no differentiating between these things. So according to these reports, he went inside calling out her name. He wasn't able to find her in the apartment. So he went downstairs to the shop thinking she might still be there. But he found this door dark and locked up for the evening. So he went back upstairs. And this time he ventured further into the apartment. And he went into the bedroom. He noticed a shape underneath the duvet on Aaron's bed. He pulled the duvet aside and he discovered the bound and bloody body of Aaron. He called police right away. They attended on scene um, also with EMS and they tried to resuscitate her on scene. And unfortunately, they pronounced her dead. So Aaron had been tied up, sexually assaulted and stabbed repeatedly. According to her autopsy, the fatal stab wound pierced her heart. So the police are working on the assumption that Aaron's killer watched and waited outside and then followed her upstairs. From a timeline perspective, this seems like the only reasonable explanation, unless it was somebody she knew and she willingly let in, because she closed the store at 845, and her friend Anthony was there between 920 and 930 to pick her up. So it's a really short window of time. So the speculation here is that Aaron's killer had been stalking her for some time before this incident occurred. So reports have said that Erin had been receiving threatening phone calls in the days leading up to her death. This was mentioned in a few articles I read. I can't find any exact quote from anybody stating this. Uh, Police were never able to trace the phone calls. I'm not sure if she reported it to the police back then or after her death. They looked into it and they couldn't find anything. Another thing of note is that Erin's phone number was unlisted. So somebody got her phone number and they knew it was her and they were harassing her. So police do not rule out the prospect that Erin knew her killer or had crossed paths with him at some point. According to friends and family, she was very friendly. Um, She socialized a lot in Yorkville. Um, She talked to people just on the street and apparently was quite kind to people who found themselves in not great circumstances. So she was very kind to the homeless or the poor. And again, this is all according to reports from friends and family. So uh, in digging through these reports, it doesn't say there was any forced entry. So the police did look into Anthony Monk, who was Aaron's boyfriend or friend at the time and also the person who found her and called the police. So a little bit of an interesting sidebar here is that Aaron's father is a very famous and wealthy businessman named David Gilmore. He actually founded the bottled water company Fiji water and Anthony Monk, Aaron's boyfriend, the person who found her, his father is Peter Monk, who was business partners with Aaron's father so that was just a little interesting tidbit that i found because the name peter monk i knew um and david gomer i had i also knew but i hadn't linked them to these murders so as i mentioned before Erin had recently moved from an apartment on Oriole parkway which is in midtown toronto to her new apartment on hazelton avenue which is about a five or ten minute drive apart only five days prior to her murder. It's also reported that she had recently returned from a vacation. So we're going to rewind to August of 1983. Susan Tice had just recently moved from Calgary, Alberta, back to Toronto. By all reports, she was very excited to be starting over. She had recently separated from her husband and she had moved to Toronto in July to kind of have a fresh start on life she had four children it I can't find anywhere if they were in Calgary with the husband or if they lived with her in Toronto it just hasn't the information hasn't appeared the, her husband was never named as a suspect so I'm assuming he was still in Calgary so she lived alone in 341 Gray Street which is a house in Toronto's Little Italy area so the weekend of August 14th, 1983, Susan had traveled out of town to visit with her family. She returned home on what police believe was Sunday, August 14th. She was supposed to attend a family gathering and she missed it. So on August 17th, her brother-in-law became concerned. So he went to her home to check on her. He noticed that the mail had been piling up. He entered the home looked around and discovered Susan in her bedroom on the second floor of her house, sexually assaulted and repeatedly stabbed in the chest. And in this case, they could find that the police clearly stated there were no signs of forced entry. So police made no connection between these two cases until, until 2000. These two women became inextricably linked when DNA revealed that the same person committed both of both of these brutal sexual assaults and murders. Back in 2000, after, police found this information out they poured through the women's lives to see if they could find a common thread there's been bits and bobs out there that susan liked to go and socialize in the yorkville area i don't know if she did that in the month that she was living in toronto again or when she was a student at the university of toronto it really doesn't say um a lot of people go and socialize in yorkville and they don't know each other. Police speculate that whoever committed these crimes was a serial offender. Detective Sergeant Reg Pitts who heads Toronto's cold case squad was quoted as saying they didn't know each other in life but they were killed by the same man. You have to ask yourself are these the only two crimes this man committed? Likely not. When I was going through these cases I a lot of similarities jumped out to me. First of all they were both women who lived alone. Um, a lot of people say, oh, it can't be a serial offender because Susan was 45 and Aaron was 22. I don't necessarily agree. Uh, they also said that Susan had dark hair, Aaron had blonde hair, so it wouldn't attract the same killer. Again, I don't agree with something that narrow minded, that's just my opinion. So both women lived alone. Um, they both had recently moved. So Susan from Calgary and Aaron from Midtown Toronto to Yorkville, and they have both recently come back from holidays. So I think the biggest thing that stands out to me is the move, because it was a month that elapsed from when Susan moved to when she was murdered, and only uh, five days from when Aaron moved to when she was murdered. I mean, those are that's a big red flag there. I imagine that the police have really looked into all the different people that these women came in contact with. Movers, people install cable, uh, hydro people. For American listeners, if you're listening, hydro is our electricity. I'm sure that they have noticed that this is a huge thing that both these women had in common. Um, they're working under the assumption that the killer likely followed both women and then saw an opportunity to strike. I agree with that. I don't think that these were random. Um, they were, you know, stabbing is notoriously a crime of passion and both women were stabbed in the chest. It's very intimate. I mean, really, I think, in my opinion, somebody that they very well possibly could have come in contact with when they were moving. And, but again, if the police had come up with somebody that was involved in both moves, I'm sure it would have come out or it could have been somebody working off the books. I don't know. So in 2012, Erin Gilmore's family put out a $200,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her killer. You know, looking through this case and researching this case, there's just not a lot of information. Um, The Toronto Police Services has a cold case website, and they they list sort of the very, very, very bare minimum information about these two cases. Um, I've found more information in regards to dates, times, and just other kind of pertinent information from all the other research that I've done. And unfortunately, there just isn't a lot of stuff to go off of. So they are asking the public for help. But I'm asking, you know, this happened in 1983. Remarkable that they haven't released any more information that could be helpful. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Police Homicide Unit at 416 808 74 Their email address is homicide at torontopolice.on.ca or you can call Crime Stoppers anonymously at 1-800-222-8477. To sum it up, we know that these women were killed by the same person. They have their DNA. It's obviously been run through the various DNA programs that we have in Canada and either the person died Or their DNA was never taken when they were arrested. I hope that by kind of rehashing this case and putting it into the podcast community, that maybe there will be somebody that comes forward that can find some connection or similarities or something. And so this is my first podcast. It sucks, I know. But I hope I did an okay job summarizing this case with the very limited information that I had. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week.